Welcome to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran. The water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi left a predominantly black city of 150,000 people without access to clean water. Now Mississippi's Republican governor says privatising the city's water system is on the table. The situation in Jackson has shone a spotlight on what many are calling a legacy of environmental racism. Our guest today, Ariel King, a lawyer and environmental justice advocate, says the history of racial segregation in this country has contributed profoundly to the environmental justices we see now. From Free Speech TV, Just Solutions. said that this is a deep-seated decades in the making kind of situation that we're seeing playing out right now in Jackson but we have also seen playing out in other communities of course Flint Michigan comes to mind but many other places are dealing with this so what do you mean by this how do we get to a situation right now where you have a predominantly black city like Jackson Mississippi where people cannot turn on their faucet and rely on the water that will come out it is not safe to drink in fact it's not safe to do anything with that water. What are the decades in the making realities that have led us to this? Sure. Um, One major factor is a lack of intentional investment in infrastructure. And we see this all over the country, but unfortunately, we see it most severely in predominantly uh, communities of color and low-income communities. And we've seen that in, in Jackson in particular, the population is over 80% Black um, residents. There's there's a large population of residents that are over the age of 60. And so a lot of people are more susceptible to the risks and diseases that might be associated with water contamination. But um, a lot of this has to do with the, the shift um, in population and in demographics of the city. So in around the 1990s, there was a like layer of white flight that happened. And so um, what was once a, a lot more diverse city um, now has a lot lower of a white population and who is left are the people who don't want to leave and shouldn't have to leave their city. And and so unfortunately, when uh, a lot of the white population left, so went a lot of the social services and money that's associated with um, that population. And so unfortunately, that's, that's what we're seeing. And we are also seeing the culmination of climate change being a contributing factor to the issues that we are seeing in Jackson. So you know, if it weren't for that flood, that very severe flood, we would not be seeing the the waste treatment plant be over flooded and over um, oversaturated and not able to actually treat the water. So, but we have had warning signs in Jackson and in other cities for quite some time now. In fact, two years ago, the Environmental Protection Agency said that, you know, declared that Jackson's water supply and their water system was insufficient. Um, they they were ranked as in, with an insufficient water supply, and yet nothing was done to fix it. Um, the The city has been experiencing boil water advisories, not just within the last few weeks, but over the last multiple months. And last year, there was also um, severe cold weather that contributed to pipes freezing and then bursting. And that also limited water access for about a month in the city. So 
again, like climate change is exacerbating the, the impacts of this predominantly black community. And this is something that we're seeing all over the country where lack of investment, lack of attention to environmental injustice is is going it's going overlooked and it's and we are unfortunately seeing the the impacts of that right now well you laid out the history there of white flight essentially and what formerly was a much more integrated city racially where you had that white flight going out into the suburbs but then Mm -hmm. with that some services but it goes even further back than that because you've written about the fact that redlining where you've had entire uh, communities denied access to affordable mortgages in certain areas. And so you have these redlined areas, not just in Jackson. This has happened in cities all around the country. And so what that has led to are communities that have been essentially segregated and, and forced to live in particular areas that are now dealing with major infrastructure problems. Talk a little bit about that, the history of redlining and how that has contributed to this lack of investment in infrastructure. Sure. So one of the impacts of redlining is that a lot of primarily white communities are zoned fully residential, whereas um, low income communities and predominantly communities of color are zoned as mixed use. And so there's there wouldn't be an ability to even like create facilities that had waste treatment and, you know, polluting facilities of any sort would not be able to even be constructed in white neighborhoods um, in a lot of cities across the US. And so right now we're dealing with the consequences and we are also seeing that there are pockets of neighborhoods and of areas all across the US that are considered sacrifice zones or areas where people who are living in proximity to industry are bearing the greatest burdens of that industry that benefits more than just people who are living around it. So one very clear example of that is Cancer Alley in Louisiana. Um, It's a 80 plus mile corridor in in Louisiana, right along the river that has over a hundred refineries. And so some of them are plastic plants, some of them are oil refineries, but they're all contributing to a significant increase in cancer risks for people who live in that area although everyone benefits from having these these plastic manufactured items and the oil that's produced there, um, the people who live right next to these facilities are the ones who are bearing the brunt of the environmental harm and environmental hazards. And this is something that we see all over. Unfortunately, uh, communities that contribute the least to environmental harm, environmental degradation, are the ones who are experiencing the climate crisis and environmental racism first and worst. And you know, we saw that also during COVID where you know, communities, low-income communities and communities of color were far more susceptible to the risks and the mortality rates for COVID because they were already living in areas that had less trees, that had more polluting industries that were contributing to um, adverse health risks in their neighborhoods. And so as a result, you saw that you know, these same communities that had more industry had the higher COVID rates and had the higher COVID mortality rates um, at the start of the pandemic. You know, that connection to redlining and, you know, how areas are zoned, it reminds me of a recent show that we have done that showed that there are these heat islands in redlined communities as well. And so with 
the climate crisis exacerbating and he, we're already just at the the end of a extremely hot summer and every summer is breaking records in terms of temperature that these communities that were redlined in more than 100 cities around the US were experiencing even warmer temperatures and then dealing with the lack of infrastructure insofar as maybe a lot of those buildings don't have air conditioning or the capacity to deal with this extreme heat so this is being laid bare but is there any effort to mitigate this? And, and we'll get back to Jackson in just a moment because some of the, the discussions happening there at a, certainly at a state level are alarming at, at best. But, um, you know, what, what is the, the policy level discussions happening when it seems so obvious that there is this direct connection between these redlined areas, these communities that have suffered from a lack of investment and they are the ones bearing the brunt are there conversations happening at a local, at a state, or even a federal level to help mitigate any of this? Sure, we certainly are seeing um, changes or at least an acknowledgement of environmental racism and the impacts of redlining and so many of these other institutionalized structures that have hindered or at least caused disparate impacts to different communities. So um, one initiative that the Biden administration has recently rolled out was the Justice 40 initiative, which essentially says that there are, you know, 40% of in climate investments, the benefits of those investments must go to uh, disproportionately impacted communities over environmentally overburdened communities and politically overlooked communities. And so we were really excited to see what that looks like and what those benefits will look like for community members. Um, but, you know, some people are saying that it would be great to see those investments go towards infrastructure repair and maintenance and also like transitioning to a more stable green and renewable energy economy um, where we are relying less on fossil fuels and contributing more to you know, access to things like community solar for people who can't put solar panels on their roofs. So um, there definitely are initiatives. We're also seeing that, you know, the Build Back Better Act has um, allocated certain amounts of money that are going to make really interesting changes specifically to and directed towards communities that have been overlooked and marginalized. So there definitely are conversations. Uh, one of the limitations to something like the Build Back Better Act is that the states allocate how the money is dispersed to like the more local municipalities. And so in a place like Jackson, um, I, I recently spoke to someone who spoke to a city council member who mentioned that, you know, there was a essentially a matching program that was put in place. So uh, whatever a city asked for in terms of funds from, from this pot of money for, to the state, um, they had to be able to match the amount that they were asking for, which obviously limits the amount that people can request, that cities can request to, to you know, do services that are needed. And so there, there are certainly limitations, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what levels of accountability are put in place to ensure that there is equitable distribution. Well, in terms of some of the responses to certainly what's happening in Jackson, um, but also to some of these other cities experiencing similar infrastructure problems is the go-to of privatization, that we'll just put this out to the highest bidder and we'll get, uh, you know, 
get it fixed that way. That seems to be the attitude right now with Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves, a Republican, saying privatization is now on the table as a potential response or fix. I use that term very lightly to what's happening in Jackson. If you look at actually how Jackson got into this position where Siemens, a German uh, global corporation, was the one that failed to to properly address the infrastructure problems. And the the community there is already saddled with millions of dollars in a bond because of those failed measures that to have a conversation at the highest level in the state of Mississippi to say, let's go further down this path of privatization and leaving it to these uh, corporations to help us with these problems, that seems to be just exacerbating an already terrible situation. And I know many organizations have come out and have slammed the option of privatization as any kind of a a solution. I'd like your response to that. Sure. Um, I fear that privatization of of any sort of of utility and, you know, something that's beneficial to life is is risky. Um, I think when you privatize things, there is the risk of you know, profit being prioritized over well-being and over safety and and over equal access. And so, um, you know, any time that people have asked me about like what privatization privatization could look like in a city like Jackson, I really think about how would that change the lives of the people who are living there. Like, would it make you know access to water more affordable? Would it make it more reliable? Would it make it all of these things or you know, would would people be in a similar position to what they are now or what they were before this current crisis? And so that's that's definitely what I think about. I I do acknowledge that corporations do have a role in environmental protection, um, but I don't feel like that role should be in owning um, utilities and utility structures. You're listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran. Our guest this week is Arielle King, an environmental justice advocate and attorney who says the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi is directly related to racial segregation and is an example of environmental racism. You can find out more about Just Solutions and watch past episodes at freespeech.org and join the conversation on social media. Let us know your thoughts. Hashtag Just Solutions. Well, Ariel, you have a long history in this. You were the Environmental Justice Staff Attorney at the Environmental Law Institute. And so you've really taken a look at justice and environmentalism as an intersection. And now you are the host and producer of the Joy Report podcast, which is also about intersectional intersectional environmentalism. And I'd love to talk about that because everything that we're talking about from whether it's redlining and housing policies and zoning to the intersection of that with then infrastructure and water, and then of course the climate crisis, it does lay bare that everything is interconnected. So yeah. talk a little bit about that intersectional aspect of this, because so often when we're seeing these issues being discussed, particularly at a policy level, they're often happening in silos. It's okay, we're having a water crisis and we'll talk about 
about that. But let's also talk about how we got here and the housing policies and the racism that brought us to this point. And of course, in the climate crisis, which is the umbrella that is, you know, not protecting any of us. In fact, it's it's the overarching issue that we're all dealing with. Talk a little bit about the the need to have these intersectional conversations. Sure. Um, So, yes, I, I work with an organization called Intersectional Environmentalist. The organization was founded about two years ago in the wake of Uh, the murder of George Floyd, when so many environmental organizations and organizations generally recognize that there is a a legacy of one exclusion um, of really acknowledging social issues and really looking holistically at problems. And so um, it we we are seeking to fill that void and make sure that people understand that not only do we need to worry about protecting the flora and fauna of this planet, but we also need to be prioritizing the protection of the people of this planet and really dismantling systems that are contributing to harm on on one end or the other, recognizing that our liberation is tied to the liberation of like the planet and just making sure that the voices who have been excluded from the environmental movement historically are being amplified. And so that's a really big part of who Intersectional Environmentalist is as an organization. Um, Right now, we're really, really focused on radical imagination and really thinking about holistically the world that we want to see and being a part of that change. And so we've been urging people to, to get involved and lean into community and connecting with people and finding needs within their local spaces that they can fill. Um, but yes, I, I'm the host and um, of The Joy Report, which is our new podcast focused on positive climate solutions through the lens of intersectionality and environmental justice. And so we, we really take different topics and condense them down into a very bite-sized and accessible podcast episode. We we feature a story about an individual or an organization that is working toward a particular solution. And then we give calls to action that um, where we encourage people to get involved in the movement one way or another, whether it be encouraging people to learn more or supporting a certain organization. And then we end the episode with just like, a series of rapid fire positive climate news um, because we recognize that most of what we're hearing about the world and environmentalism and the environment right now is very negative and it's all catastrophic and it's terrifying. And while all of that is true, there's also a lot that of good things that are happening. And there are a lot of incredible people and organizations that are working to make change and create solutions. And so our goal is to avoid people being stunned into inaction by being inundated with all of the negativity that we are seeing in the news. We really want to spread joy so that we can propel people to, to take action and get involved in this movement. Because you know, as I say at the end of the podcast, this is a, a marathon and not a sprint. And so we recognize that one, we need everyone to get involved in this movement. And this is, it needs to be sustained. And so another thing that the organization focuses on is rest. We really, um, really want to make sure that people's activism can be sustained and that we avoid burnout. And so recognizing that an intersectional holistic approach applies to ourselves and our lives as well. And so 
We have to you know, embrace and emphasize the fullness of our humanity by making sure that we are taking time to ourselves and leaning on the community that we are building um, to be able to sustain us. I think that phrase stunned into an action is such a perfect way to to really illustrate how many people feel, because I think it is overwhelming, of course, what's happening with the climate crisis, but also Mm -hmm. many of the other things that are, as we're hearing, intersectional, connected, the assault on voting rights, you know, what's happening at the Supreme Court and all of those things are connected. So when you have an issue like what's happening in Jackson, Mississippi, and decades and decades of lack of investment leading to failing infrastructure and what seems to be just this enormous problem. How do you then say energize a community response that will have environmental justice at its core when you are having the governor of Mississippi saying, no, let's talk about privatization. How do you switch that and engage the community? Yeah, um, I mean, the Flint water crisis is a case study for the ways that community came together in the midst of political neglect, in the midst of people not recognizing the magnitude of the issues that that the city was facing. Um, I actually did my senior thesis in undergrad on the Flint water crisis, and I went to Flint. And one thing that I noticed was just how how strong the sense of community was. I, I saw, you know, faith leaders being involved in just community building and and making sure that people had what they needed and make, creating distribution centers in their parking lots, in addition to the ones that were being constructed by the city, um, and really just making sure that everyone was okay. Uh, I think there there is a lot of power in community and in knowing your neighbors and knowing that you have people to support you. And so I, I think the one thing that I can share, um, you know, to the residents of, of Jackson are just, you know, lean on community and recognize that even when no one else is is there to support you, like your community will be there. And so, and I'm sure that there are examples of, you know, people who are shut in and unable to go out to these one of six distribution centers, which I think is certainly not enough. And we've seen videos of the lines where people have had to wait for hours and hours and hours to get access to bottles of water and and it running out by the time they get to the front of the line. But I, I would imagine that there are examples of people who are bringing you know, water to people who are shut in and, and just making sure that people are well taken care of in the midst of this crisis. And so... Um, I would say to the people who are not in Jackson to continue to amplify this story. Um, I think the more that people are talking about this, the better, because, you know, it increases the level of accountability when there are more eyes watching a crisis and also to support however you can. There are lots of mutual aid organizations that are on the ground um, doing the work and making sure that people are okay. And so, Um, It's actually not that hard to find them right now. There are lots of compiled lists online. And so, yeah, whether it be like if you're close enough to go and and actually lend your physical support, do that. But otherwise, like lending financial support or at least amplifying the message is, is all a part of doing, you know, what's right and supporting this community right now. And in terms of people trying to get a a handle or try to have some control about what's happening in their own communities, we have heard in the past that people really need to pay attention to some of these 
often overlooked local races. Who's serving on your county commission, your city council? Who who are making those decisions about infrastructure or privatization of some of these utilities or even zoning laws that, as we have heard earlier in this conversation and, and elsewhere, are directly impacting so many communities who are already marginalized? So right. maybe talk a little bit about that, the importance of paying attention to some of these very local political issues that often are overlooked or can seem, oh gosh, this is just too much. But when you show up at those meetings and when you and your neighbours and an entire community show up, you can exert a huge amount of pressure and have really big influence. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's there's so much power in local government. Um, and I think that you know, getting involved in local politics can have the ability of restoring faith in the political system um, and, and really seeing in real time, like what can happen. Local level politics, things can happen faster, changes can be made, and you can actually show up to like a city hall meeting or a, a town, whatever, and, and you can actually make sure that your voice is being heard. You can hold the people in power accountable or you can vote them out if they're not doing what they need to do. Um, and so, yes, I would say to whatever extent you can, I would encourage people to just find out what's happening in their in their local political sphere. And, and if it's not the right thing, or if there are things that are very, very contrary to what is needed right now on the ballot, just doing your part to support the opposite and really supporting what what you feel is right. Um, but that requires doing your research. And, you know, such an important part of environmental justice is this matter of self-determination and figuring out the best opportunities to become informed so that you can become um, active members of the decision-making process. And one, that doesn't happen unless you show up and that doesn't happen unless there is information to be shared. And so, you know, as much as you can, like try to seek out that information, try to ask questions and then show up exactly as you said, um, because it does make a difference. And just in the last couple of moments that we have in the show, Ariel, this idea of intersectionality, not just across issues, but also across movements. Mm-hmm. And one of the episodes of the Joy Report that really struck me was looking at the labor movement yes. and how that needs to intersect or is intersecting with environmentalism and the climate crisis. And when we're seeing such a re-energized labor movement right now, when we're seeing what's happening with Amazon, with Starbucks, with Trader Joe's, fast food ref- restaurants, and a lot of young people. Yes getting involved in this new organizing, it does seem like a wonderful opportunity to get those movements connected and to really amplify both of the movements. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the environmental justice movement has roots in labor um, and the civil rights movement has roots in labor. So, I mean, in, in order for us to create the world that we want to achieve, one, as I said before, everyone needs to be involved, but there's just such an important aspect of emphasizing, you know, everyone's needs and understanding that if we are not supporting people and making sure that people are protected and people are getting the rights that they deserve, like if if a person is working, they deserve to have breaks, they deserve to have clean workspaces, they deserve to have a livable wage. And that's really the, all that people are asking for right now. And they, they deserve to be heard by the people who they report to. Um, and so many of those elements are 
all like the same as in the environmental movement. You know, people want to be heard. They want to be validated in their lived experience. They want to be included in decision making and and they want to have access to safe and clean places. Um, you know, one of the catchphrases, I suppose, like of the environmental justice movement um, is that all people deserve like a clean place to live, work, and play. And so the labor movement intersects with that and so many other movements intersect with that goal and that desire. Um, but yes, it's it's really just about the basic human needs. Everyone should have access to clean water. Everyone should have access to clean air. There should be no contaminants in the soil that would prevent someone to just, you know, digging some some holes and like putting seeds in the ground and, and you know, nourishing themselves from, from this earth. And so you know, anytime that there is a limitation to that, that is an act of injustice that we need to be um, working against. Well, Arielle King, who is the host of the Joy Report podcast, has been our guest. Thank you so much for being with us on Just Solutions today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Arielle King is an attorney and an environmental justice advocate, and she's the host of the Joy Report podcast. You've been listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. You can join the conversation on social media and let us know your thoughts. Hashtag Just Solutions at Free Speech. And you can watch past episodes of the show at freespeech.org. Subscribe to the podcast and never miss an episode. For the Just Solutions podcast and Free Speech TV, I'm Maeve Conran.